Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 511 Lookout. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. I survived a 91 degree day in Philadelphia today, the 2nd of October, which just seems so wrong. But survive it I did, along with everybody else in Philadelphia, but getting to and from the train was truly (laughs) miserable slogging with giant backpack and nice clothes on. So thank goodness that's over. I am officially on day two of Inktober, and I'm posting the art that I'm doing on Instagram, so you can see it there if you want to. It is actually under my first initial last name, so it's H. Ordover if you haven't tootled on over to Instagram to uh, hunt me down. <laughs> uh, I contemplated doing a craft lit Instagram a long time ago, but there just aren't enough hours in the day. So, <sighs> so what else? What else is we have two really good voicemails that were left this week, one from Diane and one where the audio cuts out on your name. I think it's Janny, but I can't be sure. So first, we're going to listen to Diane. And she's going to fill us in on the missing pieces of information about Robert Louis Stevenson and J.M. Barry. Here we go, Diane. Hi, Heather. This is Diane from Boise, Idaho, calling again. Um, I hope you play this message and not the one I left earlier, because um, I made some claims in my earlier message, and then I went and looked them up, and now I actually have information. So, you mentioned in episode 507 that Skull Island sure sounded a lot like the island in Peter Pan, and I thought I would let you know that, yes, it was directly related to um, the island that was referenced in Treasure Island. J.M. Barry and Robert Stevenson were longtime correspondents with each other. This was when Stevenson lived in Samoa later in his life, and um, Barry was a younger writer, but they were very uh, long-time correspondents and definitely bounced ideas off of each other. And actually, in the book of Peter Pan, one of the things that is said about Captain Cook is that he's the only man that Barbecue was afraid of, and by Barbecue, of course, he meant long-time silver. So, just some tidbits to think about. Um, I also read that J.M. Barry said that his depiction of Captain Cook was intended to be an English version of Captain Ahab, and that his uh, obsession with the crocodile was similar to Ahab's obsession with the right way. So, there's some interesting little juxtapositions in there. I love learning about how authors influence each other's work. So, 
keep up the great work. I'm loving the book, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Ha ha. Spectacular. I love it when things dovetail like that. And Diana, I am so 100% with you. I love seeing authors ping off each other like pachinko balls in a machine. It's just so cool watching how they influence each other and excite each other. It's kind of like the the Algonquin Round Table in the previous early part of the previous century. Uh, watching all of those writers just fuel each other. How nice to think that J.M. Barry, as a young writer, had an opportunity to correspond with Robert Louis Stevenson as a ripe old writer of, what, probably 38, since he died at 40? It is a sobering thought to think that by the time Robert Louis Stevenson was my age, he had been dead for 12 years. I'm just saying. And I didn't make that phrasing up. That actually totally comes from Tom Lehrer. So <laughs> I can't take credit for being clever. I can only take credit for remembering weird and obscure things. But thank you, Diane. And now Jenny, I think, has a comment about the flag and Smollett's unwillingness to take the flag down, even though it was what the pirates were shooting at. Hey, Heather, this is Jenny. I'm Nissan Hikes on Ravelry. Um, I'm really liking this book. I had a comment on your observation about running the flag up and not bringing it back down, even though it was stupid because the pirates were using it to aim the gun towards the cabin that, that all of the good guys are staying in. Um, the feeling of, oh, braggadocio, um, arrogance, uh, something like that. The feeling of, of being brave enough to um, take risks like that feels like something that was fairly common in um, gentlemen <laughs> of that period. Um, some of the other books that I have read uh, kind of make a big deal about being upfront and um, honest in all of your doings. And if you're really a brave soldier, then you're upfront and honest. Um, I do know during the Napoleonic Wars, they had a really hard time, England had a really hard time keeping um, or getting people to be spies, not because they were afraid of the work, but because it was um, not gentlemanly behavior. And I also know that Henry Stimson, who was, I believe, President Hoover's Secretary of State, um, he was the Secretary of State, he um, fired a whole bunch of people from the cryptology department because he said that, and I'm quoting, gentlemen don't read each other's mail, end quote. So I think that that attitude of being um, uh, honest and upfront and uh, was was more valued <laughs> than being smart <laughs> about certain things um, in that era. And that's just what I'm I'm offering as a possible explanation for why they decided to do that. I don't think that means that um, Robert Louis Stevenson could also, well, I, I do think that it's possible that Robert Louis Stevenson could also have been poking fun at that attitude, but it may just have been a straightforward observation of, of how people behaved at that point in time, and it might have been a, a good way to juxtapose how the pirates behaved versus how honorable Englishmen, <laughs> English gentlemen behaved. 
Um, anyway, keep up the good work, and I am excited to hear the next few chapters. Thanks. Bye. I know you're right. That Well, I didn't know that about the Napoleonic Wars. Doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise me about the anti-spying position. None of None of that stuff surprises me. It would surprise me a whole lot if people said things like that now, for goodness sake. We've we've left that so far behind in the dust. But I need someone from Scotland to weigh in on this one because I'm having a hard time pulling away from the probable, in my mind, dual nature of what Stevenson did, which I, I totally think he could have held two opposing ideas in his mind at the same time. One, that it was truly a brave and noble kind of, I'm not going to win by subterfuge and cowardice. I'm going to win through bravery and being right as Smollett's position. Whereas I would have just been like, yank that thing down. Let's save our lives. I have a hard time not seeing Robert Louis Stevenson being able to firmly believe that and agree with it. But at the same time, being someone who is Scottish and poking fun at the English. So, you know, there's, there are two women in my office in Philadelphia I should ask them what they think of that section. I'll report back. I won't be able to talk to them until next week, so I, uh, I'm going to make myself a little note. I'll get back to you on that one. Aside from that, after our big epic, epicness, and then, you know, fighting, fightingness, and now there's an aftermath, and they're still stuck on an island, and there's still pirates trying to kill them, so... Something's got to give. But along with the something's got to give, I think there's an interesting thing that hasn't really been discussed at all since we got to the island. Even before that, the treasure map. We know either Smollett or Livesey or Trelawney has it. They could have been shifting it amongst themselves this whole time. We don't know. So somebody's got the map. And presumably somebody's got it on their person because if it were still back on the Hispaniola, somebody from our troop of people would be trying to go get it. So we can pretty confidently say they've got the map with them. So does that mean they're waiting to kill off all the pirates before they go? Because obviously if they just take off and go looking for the treasure right now, the pirates will follow them and then kill them once they find the treasure. So how many do they have to kill off or let, let die of fever if Dr. Livesey has his way? I don't know. Do they have to get it down to even odds or, or less or more? I have no idea. They aren't talking about it because right now in this adventure story, the treasure is not the point. The pirates are the point. And we've seen Long John Silver show up in his big blue coat with his hat on and he's, he's become his own Long John-ness. You're going to hear another pirate referred to as wearing a red cap, which... Anyone who's ridden on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride knows the red kind of stocking cap, smurf cap, shows up several times on the ride. So I guess that starts here. And I've got a couple of good sayings for you. One is not a saying. One is something that we've come across before in stories that we've read together. Hardtack and biscuit. So hardtack was bread that was made that could be taken on board a ship that was not leavened bread. It was not going to go bad. It was hard as a rock. And they may be calling it a biscuit in this, but it's really just a, a lump of very cooked dough that is going to sit in your stomach and 
make you not hungry. But also a reason that scurvy was a problem. A flea in his ear is an idiomatic phrase that is not in use around me anymore. That doesn't mean it's not in use somewhere. But having a flea in your ear or putting a flea in someone's ear it is a, an obviously an unpleasant thing to have in your ear. It is a nuisance. It is an irritant. It can also sometimes be used as a rebuke, a, a way of telling someone off that if you don't stop it, I'm putting a flea in your ear. Or you behave like that and you're putting a flea in your own ear, that kind of thing. Somebody in these chapters is going to use the phrase bit the dust in the same way that we still say bit the dust. So that was weird hearing that. I cannot wait. You just have to listen for it now. A hanger, H-A-N-G-E-R, is another name for a cutlass. The cutlass is the big saber-ish kind of sword. They were shorter, they were wider, and the blade was curved. And this is what pirates were famous for having on board the ship. However, not just pirates. It was a standard thing to have on board ships, even if you weren't a pirate at the time. Effective weaponry. You will hear Jim say that someone, I believe it's Dr. Livesey, is pulling his ear or pulled my ears. That is very much like what uh, I grew up hearing people say. I don't hear it very often anymore. Pulling my leg, uh, making a joke, or kind of teasing, making a joke often at the person whose ears or legs are being pulled. Then there's one which I think, but you know we've been at this for so long, it's hard to remember. I think we've come across this one before, and that is to take French leave. Now, this is an interesting one, because as you might imagine, to take French leave sounds like it might not be the nicest thing to say, that there's got to be something underhanded about it. And then when you find out that to take French leave is to leave a party without saying anything to the host or hostess. So you just get the heck out of Dodge and take off. It turns out that you will hear, depending on what books or area you are in, take French leave, take British leave, take Irish leave. Now, as soon as we add Irish in, boy, you know my ears pricked up and I thought, ah, here we are again with anti Irish sentiment. We come across this all the time in these books. It's really disappointing. Humans, you keep disappointing me. So the websites that I found that discussed taking French leave all said that this was a manner, a habit of manners that was current in France at the time that this idiomatic phrase first showed up, which made me think that just can't possibly be. I think it's like 1651. That just cannot be that it was considered the height of courtesy for you to ditch your host and hostess without saying thank you or goodbye. So, so that was my first instinct that something's wrong. Second, of course, when I came across the Irish leave, turns out that a lot of websites copied that initial website and said, oh no, ha ha ha, this was just a thing that the British used as a, a legitimate, I mean, they're talking about it like this is a legitimate thing, a, a legitimate phrase, like just referring to what they do in France. Oh, I'm just going to do the hip and stylish thing and not say thank you, which that just can't be right. I did finally find a website where some really smart person 
did a little bit of an essay on when this started and how it started and how you get the overlapping insult <laughs> chain going. It's it's very much like the, you're talking like you have a potato in your throat, which, am I going in the right order? The Finns say about the Swedes, the Swedes say it about the Norwegians, and the Norwegians say about the Finns. I think that's the right order it goes in. Either way, I don't think anybody talks like they have a potato in their throat, but that's just me. So you will hear a statement said with no malice aforethought that you can tell in the story, but just know that idiomatically, it probably was an insult. Coracle, C-O-R-A-C-L-E. This is interesting because it's not the only time I've seen this word used, but in this instance, it is a frame of lightweight wood, like wicker or, or something bendable. So you make a round frame, kind of like a drum, and then you stretch skin or oil skin or some kind of canvas across that frame so that you have something to sit on that kind of sinks down in the middle of this round frame. So yeah, I guess actually if you think about if you had a drum that wasn't tightened very well and you just sat on top of it and it was made out of something very thick like canvas, you would sink down in the middle, but you would still be elevated off of whatever you were on, whatever the frame was resting on. It was a way to make a little boat. It didn't go very far or do very much, but it floated and that could be enough. And once again, there is going to be an error in the story. So if you're listening along and all of a sudden you think, wait a minute, that can't be right. The answer is, you're right. It can't be right. It wasn't. It was a mistake. Nobody caught it. Oh, well, it's fine. It's not hugely important. I just didn't want you to get thrown or make you think that you had misunderstood something when, no, in fact, you're correct. All right. Chapters 21, 22, and 23 of... Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 21. The Attack. As soon as Silver disappeared, the captain, who had been closely watching him, turned toward the interior of the house and found not a man of us at his post but Grey. It was the first time we had ever seen him angry. Quarters! he roared. And then, as we slunk back to our places, Gray, he said, I'll put your name in the log. You've stood by your duty like a seaman, Mr. Trelawney. I'm surprised at you, sir. Doctor, I thought you had worn the king's coat. If that was how you served at Fontenoy, sir, you'd have been better in your berth. The doctor's watch were all back at their loopholes. The rest were busy loading the spare muskets, and every one with a red face, you may be certain, and a flea in his ear, as the saying is. The captain looked on for a while in silence. Then he spoke. "'My lads,' he said, "'I've given silver a broadside. I pitched it in red-hot on purpose, and before the hour's out, as he said, we shall be boarded.' We are outnumbered, I needn't tell you that, but we fight in shelter. And, a minute ago, I would have said we fought with discipline. I've no manner of doubt that we can drub them, if you choose. Then he went the round, and saw, as he said, that all was clear. 
On the two short sides of the house, east and west, there were only two loopholes. On the south side, where the porch was, two again, and on the north side, five. There was a round score of muskets for the seven of us. The firewood had been built into four piles, tables, you might say, one about the middle of each side, and on each of these tables some ammunition and four loaded muskets were laid ready to the hand of the defenders. In the middle the cutlasses lay ranged. "'Toss out the fire,' said the captain. "'The chill is past, and we mustn't have smoke in our eyes.' The iron fire-basket was carried bodily out by Mr. Trelawney, and the embers smothered among sand. "'Hawkins hasn't had his breakfast. Hawkins, help yourself, and back to your post to eat it,' continued Captain Smollett. "'Lively now, my lad. You'll want it before you're done. Hunter, serve out a round of brandy to all hands.' And while this was going on, the captain completed, in his own mind, the plan of defence. "'Doctor, you will take the door,' he resumed. See, don't expose yourself. Keep within, and fire through the porch. Hunter, take the east side there. Joyce, you stand by the west, my man. Mr. Trelawney, you are the best shot. You and Gray will take this long north side, with the five loopholes. It's there the danger is. If they can get up to it, and fire upon us through our own ports, things would begin to look dirty. Hawkins, neither you nor I are much account at the shooting. We'll stand by to load and bear a hand." As the captain had said, the chill was past. As soon as the sun had climbed above our girdle of trees, it fell with all its force upon the clearing, and drank up the vapours at a draught. Soon the sand was baking, and the resin melting in the logs of the blockhouse. Jackets and coats were flung aside, shirts were thrown open at the neck, and rolled up to the shoulders, and we stood there each at his post in a fever of heat and anxiety. An hour passed away. "'Hang them!' said the captain. "'This is as dull as the doldrums. Grey, whistle for a wind!' And just at that moment came the first news of the attack. "'If you please, sir,' said Joyce, "'if I see any one, am I to fire?' "'I told you so,' cried the captain. "'Thank you, sir,' returned Joyce, with the same quiet civility. Nothing followed for a time, but the remark had set us all on the alert, straining ears and eyes. The musketeers, with their pieces balanced in their hands, the captain out in the middle of the blockhouse, with his mouth very tight, and a frown on his face. So some seconds passed, till suddenly Joyce whipped up his musket and fired. The report had scarcely died away, ere it was repeated, and repeated from without in a scattering volley, shot behind shot, like a string of geese, from every side of the enclosure. Several bullets struck the log-house, but not one entered, and, as the smoke cleared away and vanished, the stockade and the woods around it looked as quiet and empty as before. Not a bow waved, not a gleam of a musket-barrel betrayed the presence of our foes. "'Did you hit your man?' asked the captain. Uh, "'No, sir,' replied Joyce. "'I believe not, sir.' "'Next best thing to tell the truth,' 
muttered Captain Smollett. "'Load his gun, Hawkins. How many should you say were on your side, Doctor?' "'I know precisely,' said Dr. Livesey. Three shots were fired on this side. I saw three flashes, two close together, one farther to the west.' Three, repeated the captain. "'And how many on yours, Mr. Trelawney?' But this was not so easily answered. There had come many from the north, seven by the squire's computation, eight or nine according to Gray. From the east and west only a single shot had been fired. It was plain, therefore, that the attack would be developed from the north, and that on the other three sides we were only to be annoyed by a show of hostilities. But Captain Smollett made no change in his arrangements. If the mutineers succeeded in crossing the stockade, he argued, they would take possession of any protected loophole and shoot us down like rats in our stronghold. Nor had we much time left to us for thought. Suddenly, with a loud huzzah, a little cloud of pirates leapt from the woods on the north side and ran straight on the stockade. At the same moment the fire was once more opened from the woods, and a rifle-ball sang through the doorway and knocked the doctor's musket into bits. The boarders swarmed over the fence like monkeys. Squire and Gray fired again, and yet again. Three men fell, one forward into the enclosure, two back on the outside. But of these one was evidently more frightened than hurt, for he was on his feet again in a crack, and instantly disappeared among the trees. Two had bit the dust, one had fled, four had made good their footing inside our defences while from the shelter of the woods seven or eight men, each evidently supplied with several muskets, kept up a hot, though useless, fire on the log-house. The four who had boarded made straight before them for the building, shouting as they ran, and the men among the trees shouted back to encourage them. Several shots were fired, but such was the hurry of the marksmen that not one appeared to have taken effect. In a moment the four pirates had swarmed up the mound and were upon us. The head of Job Anderson, the boatswain, appeared at the middle loophole. "'At em all hands! All hands!' he roared in a voice of thunder. At the same moment another pirate grasped Hunter's musket by the muzzle, wrenched it from his hands, plucked it through the loophole, and with one stunning blow laid the poor fellow senseless on the floor. Meanwhile a third, running unharmed all round the house, appeared suddenly in the doorway, and fell with his cutlass on the doctor. Our position was utterly reversed. A moment since we were firing under cover at an exposed enemy. Now it was we who lay uncovered, and could not return a blow. The log-house was full of smoke, to which we owed our comparative safety cries and confusion, the flashes and reports of pistol-shots, and one loud groan rang in my ears. "'Out, lads! Out and fight em in the open! Cutlasses!' cried the captain. I snatched a cutlass from the pile, and someone at the same time snatching another gave me a cut across the knuckles which I hardly felt. I dashed out of the door into the clear sunlight. Someone was close behind, I knew not whom. Right in front the doctor was pursuing his assailant down the hill, and, just as my eyes fell upon him, beat down his guard and sent him sprawling on his back with a great slash across his face. "'Round to the house, lads, round to the house!' cried the captain, and even in the hurly-burly I perceived a change in his voice. 
Mechanically I obeyed, turned eastward, and, with my cutlass raised, ran round the corner of the house. Next moment I was face to face with Anderson. He roared aloud, and his hanger went up above his head, flashing in the sunlight. I had not time to be afraid, but, as the blow still hung impending, leapt in a trice upon one side, and, missing my footing in the soft sand, rolled headlong down the slope. When I had first sallied from the door, the other mutineers had been already swarming up the palisade to make an end of us. One man in a red nightcap, with his cutlass in his mouth, had even got upon the top and thrown a leg across. Well, so short had been the interval, that, when I found my feet again, all was in the same posture, the fellow with the red nightcap still halfway over, another still showing his head above the top of the stockade. And yet, in this breath of time, the fight was over, and the victory ours. Gray, following close behind me, had cut down the big boson ere he had time to recover from his lost blow. Another had been shot at a loophole in the very act of firing into the house, and now lay in agony, the pistol still smoking in his hand. A third, as I had seen, the doctor had disposed of at a blow. Of the four who had scaled the palisade, only one remained unaccounted for, and he, having left his cutlass on the field, was now clambering out again with the fear of death upon him. "'Fire! Fire from the house!' cried the doctor. "'And you lads back into cover!' But his words were unheeded. No shot was fired, and the last boarder made good his escape, and disappeared with the rest into the wood. In three seconds nothing remained of the attacking party but the five who had fallen, four on the inside, and one on the outside of the palisade. The doctor and Gray and I ran full speed for shelter. The survivors would soon be back where they had left their muskets, and at any moment the fire might recommence. The house was by this time somewhat cleared of smoke, and we saw at a glance the price we had paid for victory. Hunter lay beside his loophole stunned. Joyce, by his, shot through the head, never to move again, while right in the centre the squire was supporting the captain, one as pale as the other. "'The captain's wounded,' said Mr. Trelawney. "'Have they run?' asked Mr. Smollett. "'All that could you may be bound.' returned the doctor. "'But there's five of them will never run again.' Five, cried the captain. "'Come, that's better. Five against three leaves us four to nine. That's better odds than we had at starting. We were seven to nineteen then, or thought we were, and that's bad to bear.'" Footnote. The mutineers were soon only eight in number, for the man shot by Mr. Trelawney on board the schooner died that same evening of his wound. But this was, of course, not known till after by the faithful party. End of chapter 21 Part 5 My Sea Adventure Chapter 22 How My Sea Adventure Began There was no return of the mutineers, not so much as another shot out of the woods. They had got their rations for that day, as the captain put it, and we had the place to ourselves and a quiet time to overhaul the wounded and get dinner. Squire and I cooked outside in spite of the danger, 
and even outside we could hardly tell what we were at, for the horror of the loud groans that reached us from the doctor's patients. Out of the eight men who had fallen in the action, only three still breathed. That one of the pirates who had been shot at the loophole, Hunter, and Captain Smollett. And of these the first two were as good as dead. The mutineer indeed died under the doctor's knife, and Hunter, do what we could, never regained consciousness in this world. He lingered all day, breathing loudly like the old buccaneer at home in his apoplectic fit. But the bones of his chest had been crushed by the blow, and his skull fractured in falling. And some time in the following night, without sign nor sound, he went to his maker. As for the captain, his wounds were grievous indeed, but not dangerous. No organ was fatally injured. Anderson's ball, for it was Job that shot him first, had broken his shoulder-blade and touched the lung not badly. The second had only torn and displaced some muscles in the calf. He was sure to recover, the doctor said. But in the meantime, and for weeks to come, he must not walk nor move his arm, nor so much as speak when he could help it. My own accidental cut across the knuckles was a flea-bite. Dr. Livesey patched it up with plaster, and pulled my ears for me into the bargain. After dinner the squire and the doctor sat by the captain's side a while in consultation, and when they had talked to their heart's content, it being then a little past noon, the doctor took up his hat and pistols, girt on a cutlass, put the chart in his pocket, and, with a musket over his shoulder, crossed the palisade on the north side, and set off briskly through the trees. Gray and I were sitting together at the far end of the blockhouse to be out of earshot of our officers, consulting, and Gray took his pipe out of his mouth and fairly forgot to put it back again, so thunderstruck was he at this occurrence. "'Why in the name of Davy Jones?' said he. "'Is Dr. Livesey mad?' "'Why, no,' says I. "'He's about the last of this crew for that, I take it.' "'Well, shipmate,' said Gray, "'mad he may not be, but if he's not, mark my words, I am.' "'I take it,' replied I. "'The doctor has his idea, and if I am right, he's going now to see Ben Gunn.' I was right, as appeared later. But in the meantime, the house being stifling hot, and the little patch of sand inside the palisade ablaze with midday sun, I began to get another thought into my head, which was not by any means so right. What I began to do was to envy the doctor walking in the cool shadow of the woods, with the birds about him, and the pleasant smell of the pines, while I sat grilling with my clothes stuck to the hot resin, and so much blood about me, and so many poor dead bodies lying all around, that I took a disgust of that place that was almost as strong as fear. All the time I was washing out the blockhouse, and then washing up the things from dinner, this disgust and envy kept growing stronger and stronger, till at last, being near a bread-bag, and no one then observing me, I took the first steps toward my escape, and filled both pockets of my coat with biscuit. I was a fool, if you like, and certainly I was going to do a foolish, over-bold act, but I was determined to do it with all the precautions in my power. These biscuits, should anything befall me, would at least keep me from starving till far on in the next day. The next thing I laid hold of was a brace of pistols. As I already had a powder-horn and bullets, I felt myself well supplied with arms. 
As for the scheme I had in my head, it was not a bad one in itself. It was to go down the sandy spit that divides the anchorage on the east from the open sea, find the white rock I had observed last evening, and ascertain whether it was there or not that Ben Gunn had hidden his boat, a thing quite worth doing, as I still believe. But as I was certain I should not be allowed to leave the enclosure, my only plan was to take French leave and slip out when nobody was watching, and that was so bad a way of doing it as made the thing itself wrong. But I was only a boy, and I had made my mind up. Well, as things at last fell out, I found an admirable opportunity. The squire and Gray were busy helping the captain with his bandages. The coast was clear. I made a bolt for it over the stockade and into the thickest of the trees, and before my absence was observed I was out of cry of my companions. This was my second folly, far worse than the first, as I left but two sound men to guard the house, but, like the first, it was a help towards saving all of us. I took my way straight for the east coast of the island, for I was determined to go down the seaside of the spit to avoid all chance of observation from the anchorage. It was already late in the afternoon, although still warm and sunny. As I continued to thread the tall woods, I could hear from far before me not only the continuous thunder of the surf, but a certain tossing of foliage and grinding of boughs which showed me the sea breeze set in higher than usual. Soon cool draughts of air began to reach me, and a few steps farther I came forth into the open borders of the grove, and saw the sea lying blue and sunny to the horizon, and the surf tumbling and tossing its foam along the beach. I have never seen the sea quiet round Treasure Island. The sun might blaze overhead, the air be without a breath, the surface smooth and blue, but still these great rollers would be running along all the external coast, thundering and thundering by day and night, and I scarce believe there is one spot in the island where a man would be out of earshot of their noise. I walked along beside the surf with great enjoyment, till, thinking I was now got far enough to the south, I took the cover of some thick bushes and crept warily up to the ridge of the spit. Behind me was the sea. In front the anchorage. The sea-breeze, as though it had the sooner blow itself out by its unusual violence, was already at an end. It had been succeeded by light variable airs from the south and southeast, carrying great banks of fog, and the anchorage, under lee of Skeleton Island, lay still and leaden, as when first we entered it. The Hispaniola on that unbroken mirror was exactly portrayed from the truck to the water-line, the Jolly Roger hanging from her peak. Alongside lay one of the gigs. Silver in the stern-sheets, him I could always recognise, while a couple of men were leaning over the stern bulwarks, one of them with a red cap, the very rogue that I had seen some hours before stride legs upon the palisade. Apparently they were talking and laughing, though at that distance, upward of a mile, I could, of course, hear no word of what was said. All at once there began the most horrid, unearthly screaming, which at first startled me badly, though I had soon remembered the voice of Captain Flint, and even thought I could make out the bird by her bright plumage as she sat perched upon her master's wrist. Soon after the jolly boat shoved off and pulled for shore, 
and the man with the red cap and his comrade went below by the cabin companion. Just about the same time the sun had gone down behind the spyglass, and as the fog was collecting rapidly it began to grow dark in earnest. I saw I must lose no time if I were to find the boat that evening. The white rock, visible enough above the brush, was still some eighth of a mile farther down the spit, and it took me a goodish while to get up with it, crawling often on all fours among the scrub. Night had almost come when I laid my hands on its rough sides. Right below it there was an exceeding small hollow of green turf, hidden by banks and a thick understory about knee-deep, that grew there very plentifully, and in the centre of the dell, sure enough, a little tent of goat-skins, like what the gypsies carry about with them in England. I dropped into the hollow, lifted the side of the tent, and there was Ben Gunn's boat. Home-made, if ever anything was home-made, a rude, lopsided framework of tough wood, and stretched upon that a covering of goat-skin with the hair inside. The thing was extremely small, even for me, and I can hardly imagine that it could have floated with a full-sized man. There was one athwart set as low as possible, a kind of stretcher in the bows, and a double paddle for propulsion. I had not then seen a coracle such as the ancient Britons made, but I have seen one since, and can give you no fairer idea of Ben Gunn's boat than by saying it was like the first and the worst coracle ever made by man. But the great advantage of the coracle it certainly possessed, for it was exceedingly light and portable. Well, now that I had found the boat, you would have thought I had had enough of truancy for once, but in the meantime I had taken another notion, and become so obstinately fond of it that I would have carried it out, I believe, in the teeth of Captain Smollett himself. This was to slip out under cover of the night, cut the Hispaniola adrift, and let her go ashore where she fancied. I had quite made up my mind that the mutineers, after their repulse of the morning, had nothing nearer their hearts than to up-anchor and away to sea. This, I thought, it would be a fine thing to prevent, and now that I had seen how they left their watchmen unprovided with a boat, I thought it might be done with little risk. Down I sat to wait for darkness, and made a hearty meal of biscuit. It was a night out of ten thousand for my purpose. The fog had now buried all heaven. As the last rays of daylight dwindled and disappeared, absolute blackness settled down on Treasure Island. And when at last I shouldered my coracle and groped my way stumblingly out of the hollow where I had supped, there were but two points visible on the whole anchorage. One was the great fire on shore by which the defeated pirates lay carousing in the swamp. The other, a mere blur of light upon the darkness, indicated the position of the anchored ship. She had swung round to the ebb. Her bow was now toward me. The only lights on board were in the cabin, and what I saw was merely a reflection on the fog of the strong rays that flowed from the stern window. The ebb had already run some time, and I had to wade through a long belt of swampy sand, where I sank several times above the ankle, before I came to the edge of the retreating water, and, wading a little way in, with some strength and dexterity, set my coracle keel downward on the surface. 
End of chapter 22 Chapter 23 The Ebb Tide Runs The Coracle, as I had ample reason to know before I was done with her, was a very safe boat for a person my height and weight, both buoyant and clever in a seaway. But she was the most cross-grained, lopsided craft to manage. Do as you pleased, she always made more leeway than anything else, and turning round and round was the manoeuvre she was best at. Even Ben Gunn himself has admitted that she was queer to handle till you knew her way. Certainly I did not know her way. She turned in every direction but the one I was bound to go. The most part of the time we were broadside on, and I am very sure I never should have made the ship at all but for the tide. By good fortune, paddle as I pleased, the tide was still sweeping me down, and there lay the Hispaniola, right in the fairway, hardly to be missed. First she loomed before me like a blot of something yet blacker than darkness, then her spars and hull began to shake shape, and the next moment, as it seemed, for the further I went the brisker grew the current of the ebb, I was alongside of her hawser, and had laid hold. The hawser was as taut as a bowstring, and the current so strong she pulled upon her anchor. All round the hull in the blackness the rippling current bubbled and chattered like a little mountain stream. One cut with my sea-gully and the Hispaniola would go humming down the tide. So far so good, but it next occurred to my recollection that a tight hawser, suddenly cut, is a thing as dangerous as a kicking horse. Ten to one, if I were so foolhardy as to cut the Hispaniola from her anchor, I and the coracle would be knocked clean out of the water. This brought me to a full stop, and if fortune had not again particularly favoured me, I should have had to abandon my design. But the light airs which had begun blowing from the south-east and south had hauled round after nightfall into the south-west. Just while I was meditating a puff came caught the Hispaniola, and forced her up into the current, and, to my great joy, I felt the hawser slacken in my grasp, and the hand by which I held it dip for a second under water. With that I made my mind up, took out my gully, opened it with my teeth, and cut one strand after another till the vessel swung only by two. Then I lay quiet waiting to sever these last when the strain should be once more lightened by a breath of wind. At this time I had heard the sound of loud voices from the cabin, but, to say the truth, my mind had been so entirely taken up with other thoughts that I had scarcely given ear. Now, however, when I had nothing else to do, I began to pay more heed. One I recognised for the coxswains. Israel hands that had been Flint's gunner in former days. The other was, of course, my friend of the red nightcap. Both men were plainly the worst of drink, and they were still drinking. For, even while I was listening, one of them, with a drunken cry, opened the stern window and threw out something which I divined to be an empty bottle. But they were not only tipsy, it was plain that they were furiously angry. 
oaths flew like hailstones, and every now and then there came forth such an explosion as I thought was sure to end in blows. But each time the quarrel passed off, and the voices grumbled lower for a while, until the next crisis came, and in its turn passed away without result. On shore I could see the glow of the great campfire burning warmly through the shoreside trees. Someone was singing a dull, old, droning sailor's song, with a droop and a quaver at the end of each verse, and seemingly no end to it all but the patience of the singer. I had heard it on the voyage more than once, and remembered these words. But one man of the crew alive what put to sea with seventy-five. And I thought it was a ditty rather too dolefully appropriate for a company that had met such cruel losses in the morning. But indeed, from what I saw, all these buccaneers were as callous as the sea they sailed on. At last the breeze came. The schooner sidled and drew nearer in the dark. I felt the hawser slacken once more, and, with a good tough effort, cut the last fibres through. The breeze had but little action on the coracle, and I was almost instantly swept against the bows of the Hispaniola. At the same time the schooner began to turn upon her heel, spinning slowly, end for end, across the current. I wrought like a fiend, for I expected every moment to be swamped, and since I found I could not push the coracle directly off, I now shoved straight astern. At length I was clear of my dangerous neighbour, and just as I gave the last impulsion my hands came across a light cord that was trailing overboard across the stern bulwarks. Instantly I grasped it. Why I should have done so I can hardly say. It was at first a mere instinct, but once I had it in my hands and found it fast, curiosity began to get the upper hand, and I determined I should have one look through the cabin window. I pulled in hand over hand on the cord, and, when I judged myself near enough, rose at infinite risk to about half my height, and thus commanded the roof and a slice of the interior of the cabin. By this time the schooner and her little consort were gliding pretty swiftly through the water. Indeed, we had already fetched up level with the campfire. The ship was talking, as sailors say, loudly, treading the immeasurable ripples with an incessant weltering splash, and until I got my eye above the window sill I could not comprehend why the watchman had taken no alarm. One glance, however, was sufficient, and it was only one glance that I durst take from that unsteady skiff. It showed me hands and his companion locked together in deadly wrestle, each with a hand on the other's throat. I dropped upon the thwart again, none too soon, for I was near overboard. I could see nothing for the moment but these two furious encrimsoned faces swaying together under the smoky lamp, and I shut my eyes to let them grow once more familiar with the darkness. The endless ballad had come to an end at last and the whole diminished company about the campfire had broken into the chorus I had heard so often. Fifty men on the dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho ho, and, and a, a bottle, bottle of rum, drink and the devil have done for the rest. 
I was just thinking how busy Drink and the Devil were at that very moment in the cabin of the Hispaniola, when I was surprised by a sudden lurch of the coracle. At the same moment she yawed sharply, and seemed to change her course. The speed, in the meantime, had strangely increased. I opened my eyes at once. All around me were little ripples, combing over with a sharp, bristling sound, and slightly phosphorescent. The Hispaniola herself, a few yards in whose wake I was still being whirled along, seemed to stagger in her course, and I saw her spars toss a little against the blackness of the night. Nay, as I looked longer, I made sure she also was wheeling to the southward. I glanced over my shoulder, and my heart jumped against my ribs. There, right behind me, was the glow of the campfire. The current had turned at right angles, sweeping round along with it the tall schooner and the little dancing coracle, ever quickening, ever bubbling higher, ever muttering louder, it went spinning through the narrows for the open sea. Suddenly the schooner in front of me gave a violent yaw, turning perhaps through twenty degrees, and almost at the same moment one shout followed another from on board. I could hear feet pounding on the companion-ladder, and I knew that the two drunkards had at last been interrupted in their quarrel, and awakened to a sense of their disaster. I laid down flat in the bottom of that wretched skiff, and devoutly recommended my spirit to its maker. At the end of the straits I had made sure we must fall into some bar of raging breakers, where all of my troubles would be ended speedily, and though I could perhaps bear to die, I could not bear to look upon my fate as it approached. So I must have lain for hours, continually beaten to and fro upon the billows, now and again wetted with flying sprays, and never ceasing to expect death at the next plunge. Gradually weariness grew upon me, a numbness, an occasional stupor fell upon my mind, even in the midst of my terrors, until sleep at last intervened, and in my sea-tossed coracle I lay and dreamed of home and the old Admiral Bembo. End of chapter 23 Okay, well, we have to start with poor Jim. Poor Jim in peril. The whole drama of the boat, of the Hispaniola being unmoored. First off, smart kid figuring out that if he had cut the rope when the rope was taut, it would have caused the Hispaniola to move in such a way as to suck him in slash probably under in the um, the suction that was created by by that kind of motion of a big ginormous ship. I had to listen several times and really concentrate on how Stevenson described the motions of the ship. It is complicated, and that man had to have spent quite a bit of time paying attention to this stuff to figure out how, or talk to somebody, to figure out how a ship would behave in a moment like that. I don't think he just made this up whole cloth. It seems far too detailed to me. However, I know we do have sailors who listen to the show, so... Call in 206-350-1642 if, well, if I'm wrong or if you have anything to add about what's going on with the Hispaniola in this part of the book, because I thought that was amazing. And then you get that kind of ricochet movement and poor Jim is just 
drifting off away in the little coracle. I don't know how long he gets to stay afloat in that thing, but yikes. So that's the end. But going back to the very, very beginning of our chapters, I got such a giggle out of Captain Smollett you know, watching at the end of our previous chapters, watching Long John Silver finally clamber over the fence and make his huffy way away. And the beginning of this chapter, Smollett turns around and is like, what are you jerks doing? You're, nobody is at their post. Nobody is keeping watch to make sure that they're not ambushed while Silver is talking. <laughs> they're all behaving like seven-year-old boys. And then they all kind of, you know, immediately go back to the place that they were supposed to be. I just love that image. Moments like that just make these things so real. I love it. Uh, I also thought that the description of the island uh, in chapter 22, end of 22, with the great banks of fog, that the, again, like Never Neverland's island, that you've got this mysterious layer that every once in a while is getting added. And then, you know, real life takes over and people die and horrible things happen. And then you get an opportunity to go, okay, but no, now it's... Now it's spooky again. Now it's eerie. Now the pirates are out. I also wasn't sure if you caught it. It went by very quickly, and I didn't catch it the first couple times I listened. Dr. Livesey treats not only their people who have been wounded, but he treats the pirate who was left behind and wounded. Uh, the man didn't live, but that's certainly not any slight against Dr. Livesey. He's in a warm, moist climate. These people are getting cut with big nasty things and pieces of lead and no antibiotics and really not much in the way of an antiseptic. So it's not that huge a surprise that the pirate didn't make it. But impressive that Livesey, even in the face of all of the things that they are up against at this point, is, again, like we were talking about earlier, an honorable man. He's going to do the right thing. And not a joke. I don't think that this is something that Stevenson would have joked about. This is not a dig at the English, or nor, nor do I think it could have been a dig at the English. I think he's, he's really given a high five to Dr. Livesey on that one. And I don't know if you caught it, but the place that they made the mistake was the pirates were chopping up the jolly boat, either at the beginning of chapter 21 or at the end of the last, I think it was the beginning of this chapter. They're chopping up the jolly boat later, in uh, the end of chapter 22, Silver evidently was supposed to have taken the jolly boat back from the Hispaniola to the shore. Oh, I don't think so. There was only one jolly boat. And, and that was the mistake. So, you know, it happens. It's like people who find mistakes in George R.R. R. Martin's books. <laughs> it's like, but wait a minute. On page 12 of volume 17, your character had green eyes. And then in volume 27 had blue eyes. Yes, that's going to happen. Probably more often than authors would like to believe. But that's life. And that's it for us for this week. I hope you enjoyed these chapters. I thought these were, these were interesting chapters, even though it wasn't like a whole lot. Well, I guess the end with Jim and the boat, that was a big deal. Cutting that sucker loose is a big deal. But I, I really like these chapters. So... Thank you for the phone calls. Don't forget, you can call as well, 206-350-1642, and let us know what you're thinking about. 
I think that's it. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review at iTunes or like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or any one of a million different places that Craftlet wound up over the last 13 years. For more information on Craftlet, you can visit craftlit.com and subscribe via your favorite podcast app or download the Craftlet app so you can get all of your episodes right there in your hand all in one place without having to hassle with anything else. So you can be sure not to miss any of Treasure Island. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. Thanks. <laughs>